These are the confessions of American Christians recovering from American Christianity. This is the world we make. I'm here with Pastor Jacob Menzel. And I'm here with Nathan Alberson. That's me. And this is part two of our mini-series delving into that most intriguing of questions, nature or nurture, aka how does a gay or lesbian person become a gay or lesbian person? Is it nature, like they were just born this way, or nurture, like several factors in his childhood contributed to an escalating sense of blah, blah, blah? Last time we came down pretty heavily on the side of nurture. Boys and girls don't have a good father, a good mother, a good school, or good friends. Or a good father. Or a good father. Or a good father. To help them, as Tim put it, close properly with their own sexuality. So they get messed up one way or another. It's what Tim's seen as a pastor, and it's what I've seen as a pastor. And it's what I've seen as, like, a dude with eyeballs. But as Tim pointed out, even if they were to discover a gay gene, nobody's off the hook. Yeah, because we've all got a gay gene. Or a fornicating gene, or a greed gene, or a gossip gene. It's called original sin. Right. But all this brings us to an interesting point. Do tell. What about those people who, for whatever reason, nature or nurture, are tempted by homosexual desires but don't choose to act on them? Hmm. You mean like the gay celibacy movement? I mean the gay celibacy movement. Okay, so what's the gay celibacy movement? In the show notes, we'll link to an article by the Gospel Coalition, which is an excerpt of a book by a man named Ed Shaw who runs livingout.org. The book is called Same-Sex Attraction in the Church, The Surprising Plausibility of the Celibate Life. The post is called, Godliness is Not Heterosexuality, and there you have it. The idea is that homosexual inclination is not in and of itself sin, and the church has failed homosexuals by equating the two. Here's Ed Shaw on the same subject, taken from an interview at Woodlands Church. So often the church has been really, really bad in our interactions uh, with the gay community at large, but most of all with uh, sort of gay individuals. And at Living Out, we want to change that, and we want to make the church more welcoming and more um, helpful to people uh, who experience a whole host of, of different sort of forms of sexuality. And yet at the same time, we want to say that what has been traditionally understood as the church's teaching on uh, marriage and on um, gay sex is right, and we should go for it, and we should live in the light of it, while also being much more forgiving and affirming and helpful in the way that we uh, articulate that truth. So instead of saying, I, um, I want to have all the same rights and opportunities for marriage as a heterosexual couple, you, you take the kind of traditional church line on um, marriage between a man and a woman. What was your own experience? Uh, obviously, coming from a Christian background, that must have had a particular uh, resonance and, and issue with you. Yeah, I think I'm not... I think often the experience of people who are same-sex attracted to identify gay is one of isolation as a, as a teenager, as a young adult, perhaps throughout the rest of, of life, because you are different. And uh, is this something that you, you, you always were aware yeah, of? Yeah, I mean, as soon as puberty sort of kicked in, um, I was aware that I was um, instinctively attracted to some of the guys I was growing up with and at the same time as they were becoming instinctively attracted to some of the girls that we were growing up with. And so I was aware that there was something different. I didn't quite at that stage think... Oh, I must be gay. I thought I'm, I thought I would just be gay for a phase. And mm. certainly in the conversations my parents had had with me about sex and sexuality, they mentioned that that sometimes happened. And so I thought this must be just a phase. And it took me until about 28 when I realized that it probably just wasn't a phase wow. and the puberty was probably over. Um, 
And this was more than a phase. Um, and that's the time when I thought this is probably going to be a settled thing. Let's think about that. Let's work out how I can integrate that with a Christian life rather than, you know, f- rather than doing what I think sadly a lot of Christians do, which is sort of have a, a sort of divided life or a life that's full of shame because of their sexuality. And this is something that gets in the way of a relationship with God rather than God, something that God can take and use. You start to get the idea. Yeah, there's a lot of language to wade through, but basically the idea is that there are Christians who will be same-sex attracted, and the church's job is to accept and love them. Their job is not to act on those attractions. They're gay, and they're celibate. Gay celibacy. That's it in a nutshell. So, uh, what does Tim say about that, I wonder? Well, the important thing to understand in the whole gay Christian movement is that it is an attempt to remove shame from gayness in the church. Nobody thinks of it that way, but there's a simple experiment that can be done that shows that's true, and that is, instead of talking about gay Christian, let's talk about uh, zoophile Christians, or zoophile is somebody that has sex with animals. And the minute I say zoophile Christians, everybody's hair stands on end. Or let's say pedophile Christians, you know, somebody that likes to have sex with young boys, little people. All right, pedophile Christian. What if a guy came into our church and wanted to be interviewed for membership and announced to the elders that he was a pedophile Christian? Well, it wouldn't go over real big. Why not? Well, because there is not a movement to remove shame from pedophilia in the church today. Currently, that work is being done with homosexuality. And so that's the reason that everybody's talking about gay Christians and nobody's talking about pedophile Christians. And there aren't websites called livingout.org for pedophile Christians who are going around speaking at conferences about how they love little boys. Now, I'm saying that in a harsh way because I want the horror of what I'm saying to shock us into realizing that we've been softened up by the homosexualist movement such that we don't even miss a beat when somebody says gay Christian. But the minute I say pedophile Christian or zoophile Christian, all of a sudden our hearts palpitate. You know, it's like gut-wrenching. So I've talked about zoophiles and I've talked about pedophiles, but even adulterers. I mean, okay, How about if we start a website, livingout.org, for people who come out of the closet with their polyamorous desires? I am a man who wants to bed every woman in our church, all right, or multiple women in our church. And so I think it's time for the church to realize that I'm in the middle of the church and the church to embrace me because I don't act on it, but this is who I am. And and people need to accept me as I am. I mean, I'm not saying they need to accept my desire for every woman in the church, but they need to accept the fact that I am a man who has a desire for all kinds of women. I'm polyamorous. I mean, Who wants to announce what their sexual perversion is and have a website for it and write books about it and have everybody just have, you know, old home week with these people with anything except gays? And is it because what gays do sexually is so much cleaner and more presentable than what an adulterer does? I don't think so. So why are we all softened up for gay Christian, but we're not softened up for pedophile Christian? This whole thing, gay Christian, the whole thing about livingout.org, the whole thing about having sexual minorities from Christian colleges, it's all about the normalizing of homosexuality. It's all a part of the homosexualist movement. It's an all an attempt to remove shame 
from homosexual desires. And the minute we remove shame from homosexual desires, we have given up one of the principal things that God designed to protect people from the sin. And no one who is a Christian and loves homosexuals is going to work to run around treating homosexual temptation as if it is just a slight aberration that we can talk about without shame and we can have conferences on and we can have websites where people come out publicly and, and it's not going to harm people. It will harm people. We are giving up on shame. We're not referring to it as sodomy anymore. We're not referring to people with that temptation who give into it as sodomites anymore. We're not reminding them of what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. All of this is a satanic conspiracy that is shot through the church because the church is led by pastors and elders who, who have not learned discernment. And they've given into it, and all the homosexuals are much more vulnerable today because of our attempts to have people think we're kinder and gentler, and for us to run around telling everybody, some of my best friends are gay. Now, wait, wait, wait. Yes? I, I have a confession to make. Yes? You know, sometimes on this fine program, I, I kind of like to play devil's advocate. I do know that. Because you know me, man. I'm, I'm the voice of the people. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm just a, a regular guy. If, if you prick me, do I not bleed? I can confirm that you do. And I, I put my pants on. First, I do the one leg, and then I do the other leg, kind of regular guy style. I put my pants on. <laughs> I'm happy to say I cannot confirm that. But the point is, this stuff, it, it kind of actually bothered me for real as we were talking to Tim, because there are people who deal with this temptation, and, you know, they didn't ask for it, but by, by nature or nurture, they got it. And it's like, it's a rock around their neck, and it's not going away. There are dudes who desire dudes, ladies who desire ladies, and they believe in Jesus, and they want to repent. They may think it's an abomination. They may believe very much in Eve and not so much in Steve. They may do all that and yet somehow not magically find themselves with their desires going the right direction. What are they supposed to do? You know, it, it makes me think of the poem from the Lon Chaney Jr. The Wolfman. What poem from the Lon Chaney Jr. The Wolfman? How does it go? Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. That poem. Uh, you do realize that's from a fictional werewolf movie, right? Huh? Sorry to say. No, but, but the reason those monster movies are popular is because they get at stuff. In this case, the idea that some people, like, have a beast inside that won't go away. Yeah, but in real life, people are still responsible. It turns out nobody actually transforms into a werewolf who has no control over his actions and no sense of what he's doing. Okay, but the point is, the gay celibacy movement, as lame as it is, at least it's attempting to make provision for the fact that some people have inclinations, or, or actually, let's say some people have wicked temptations, that might not go away this side of heaven. And what's the church supposed to do with them? Do we acknowledge that such a person exists? Tim? Do you notice that I'm being cagey in answering your questions? And the reason is that I always want to bring in other serious sin to get us away from treating homosexual temptation as if it's different. It's not different. And so we can apply to it what we apply to every other tenacious besetting sin. It is different in some ways in that, especially with men who have been in homosexual sex for a long period of time, there is a tenacity to that bondage that does seem to hang on harder and longer than some other sins, all right? So you say, what about the person who stays single or who spends their life doing some weird things to avoid homosexual temptation. Or who simply does not find themselves attracted to women, let's say. A man who 
wants to be godly, wants to repent, and finds that his desires for his whole life do not change, or does such a man exist? Many, 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 many men like that exist. Many. But they don't talk about it. And they shouldn't talk about it. Now that's weird, isn't it? That's why I started out at the very beginning by saying that all through history, everybody's known that there are people who their besetting sin is homosexuality. But society doesn't talk about it. It keeps it in the closet because it's shameful. This is a burden that's to be carried privately because if it's not carried privately and if we start talking about it, vice is a monster of such frightful mean as to be hated needs but to be seen, but seen too oft, familiar with her face. We first endure, and then pity, and then embrace. All this cheap talk about gay Christian and livingout.org, and this is my particular besetting sin, is part and parcel of the removal of shame from homosexuality. And it destroys homosexuals, because it makes them feel as if they're just sort of a little bit abnormal, but it's not real serious. and. And if they dally in it every now and then and give in and use Craigslist or use homosexual pornography, it's not really because everybody has their besetting sin and everything. Look, homosexuality is an abomination to God. It's not just an abomination when you get in bed with another man. It's an abomination when you fantasize about it. It's an abomination when you are precious with the thoughts of your brain that nobody knows. It's an abomination when you look at another man's body out on the street. It's an abomination. And so we have to start realizing that we can't go around the country telling everybody that my desire is for other men, but I'm living celibate because my desire is for other men and I need to honor God, but I'm gay Christian. It's, it's insanity. There's a reason it's never happened in church history. There's a reason. And the reason is that that man going around telling everybody that he's a celibate gay Christian is causing other men to be more vulnerable to homosexual temptation. And he's causing adulterers to be more vulnerable. He's causing fornicators. He's causing pedophiles. Every sexual sin, when he hears a shameful sin talked about as if we don't have to worry about removing uh, a modesty panel from this sin. We can take it out of the closet, trot it around, dress it up, write books about it, have websites for it, and it's not going to influence the ability of Christians to stand against this sin. And it doesn't matter about the pagans because they're going to hell anyhow. No, 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 no. We have to recover the closet. We have to put this back in the closet. But yes, all through history, there have been many, many men and women who have not been able to be desirous of the opposite sex for various reasons and who have had, if I can refer to it as an apostolate from God, to suffering knowing that they cannot take the vows of marriage because they're incapable of fulfilling them. It's just as if you had been made a eunuch for the sake of your voice in the Vatican choir. You were one of the castrati, okay? Yes, there are people that their whole lives they can't get married and they can't have a woman because if they married a woman, they could not promise that they would love her and unite with her physically as God intended. And so the church should never marry people like that if they know that they're incapable of having sexual desire for a member of the opposite sex. But those people are not second-class citizens. 
Number one, those people have the ability of giving themselves to the kingdom of God in a way a married man doesn't. This is what Paul says about singleness. Now, was Paul gay? You know, everybody's going to ask that question, you know, is that why he didn't, wasn't married? Well, we don't know. We know he had a thorn in the flesh. I don't think it's scandalous at all to think that his thorn in the flesh may have been that he was incapable of having a desire for women. I don't think that's scandalous. The Apostle Paul was somehow, because of his thorn in the flesh, weak in a way that glorified God, because God said, in your weakness, I am made strong. And isn't that the case with Christians who used to be gay and have repented? Isn't it that they're weak? Wouldn't we call it weakness to not be able to love a woman and take responsibility and make love to her and and be fruitful and have children and have a, a whole brood? That's weakness. But what a gift to the church people like that are. I think of John Stott, who <laughs> have some theological differences with him, but what wonderful, wonderful things he and other single Christians through, you know, Mother Teresa, although again, uh, <laughs> I don't want to totally uh, jump on board with her and her maybe uh, universalism, and but I have known many men and women in my life who have been tremendous gifts to the church. And part of that is the fact that they're single. I'm not going to say that they're all lesbians or gays or something like that. And if someone's listening and they think that might be them and they hear you say, keep it private, keep it in the closet, of course that doesn't mean they don't go to their pastor with it or something like no, that. No, no, right? no, 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 no. They they can feel free to confess their sins to other Christians, let alone if they're a woman, a Titus to older woman, or to the deacons, to the elders, to their priest, to their pastor. No, nobody should have to bear that burden. We're supposed to bear one another's burdens. This is a burden that we have to love each other. If there are older people in the church, I make a point of women who are single and have been single sometimes for decades. I make a point every Sunday of of hugging them and, and rubbing their backs and telling them that they're beautiful and that I love them. Now, people can say that that's flattering and and manipulation, but it's not at all. I look at them and I wish I could do that for my mother right now. And when my mother was alive until a few years ago, I did it with her. This is part of us bearing one another's burdens. These older women, nobody touches them. No one. And so if you're dealing with a homosexual man, one of the things I believe in and we do in our churches as men, we are intentionally greeting one another with a holy kiss. We do kiss each other in the church, and part of my reason for doing that is I want the men here who are single, I want to touch them every single week, and I want them to know that I don't think they're dirty, that I love them. Uh, No, I'm not talking about taking it back in a closet so that you suffer alone with shame. And I don't know how to describe the difference of what I'm talking about and that. I think that always in the church, there have been people who have been known to struggle with that kind of temptation and have confessed it and have been prayed for, have had hands laid on them and prayed for at times, and they're in people's homes. If the church doesn't know the weaknesses and temptations of each other. How can the church pray for one another that they'll be healed? How can we counsel each other? How can we love one another? How can we forgive each other? How can love cover a multitude of sins? 
I don't know how to describe the difference between that and coming out of the closet, but to me, there's a very clear difference. One is sort of this out and loud, aggressive normalization. But this is a modest and timid and yet faithful plea for help, not an aggressive promotion of one's victim status. Sounds like one is pride and one's humility. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Because honestly, all the church is is sinners. And wouldn't it be a relief if people tempted by homosexuality were free to sit down at the table with people who are tempted by greed and by alcohol and by gossip and by envy and by pride and by, you know, can't we just be sinners repenting in the church? And can't we say no to homosexuals having special status, that they're the one group that doesn't have to repent because they didn't choose it and it was there from the beginning and, and they're tired of being in the closet and now they're out and about and they're... That's homosexualist rhetoric and ideology and pressure and that should have no place in the church. Homosexuals should be free to just have one more sexual sin, just like everybody else has their besetting sins and to be loved and accepted. So there you have it. Did that make you happy? Yeah, yeah. I mean, th this is a big general discussion we're having. There are a lot of difficulties to be met when the, the rubber meets the road. Sure, and we'll be talking about more of those in the coming weeks. Yeah, but until then, I'm happy. The World We Made was written by Nathan Alberson and produced and executive produced by Nathan Alberson and Jacob Menzel. You can find more great content at warhornmedia.com or follow us on social media under at warhornmedia.com.